Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Software Radio. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. We have a great guest on the line with us today. Uh, We're we're going to be talking very shortly to Jay Dobbins. And if uh, the name doesn't ring a bell when I tell you his story, it will ring a bell. Jay is a retired special agent with the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF. He's uh, He's a decorated veteran of, I believe, 27 years with the with the bureau over there and he uh went undercover um for for a time investigating the hell's angels motorcycle club and the west coast mainly in the state of arizona and um he ended up writing a book that was a new york times bestseller about that but um jay isn't just that Uh, he's he's a very varied person he grew up in Indiana. Well, he was born in Indiana. Grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Was a uh, All Pac-10 wide receiver for Arizona. Um, he played uh, in the Canadian Football League in the USFL before becoming a law enforcement agent. And then uh, after that, obviously, we're going to get into it. But before we go any further, I want to welcome him to our Software Up Radio podcast. Jay, thanks for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Steve, thanks for having me on your show, and hello to your audience. Yeah, well, we all uh, wanted to hear your story here today. Um, yeah, so um, 
you know, growing up in, in Tucson, coming from Indiana, that must have been quite a change. It was, you know, when I was a kid, um, I, my life started in Northwest Indiana, just outside Chicago. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a carpenter. My mom was a house cleaner. Um, they moved us to Arizona uh, looking for work. And so Tucson is and continues to be where I call home. Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, Arizona, I've never spent a lot of time there when I was still in the military. We used to train in Arizona on occasion, but uh, I've never spent a lot of time there. Um, we have some friends of our family that live in the Scottsdale area, and I would love to go there and and spend more time just mostly just passing through on the way to California, but I would like to go back. When you come back, come in the winter because we had a miserable summer. We had over a hundred uh, consecutive days, over a hundred degrees. We were hitting in the one tens, and it was that, was brutal. So come visit in uh, January, February. Yeah, that's um, that seems to be the the consensus of people I've talked to there. Um, so after you graduated high school, you went to. Uh, you know, the, the Arizona was a uh, part of the Wildcats and you were part of their all century football team, you know, um, then you went on to the USFL and briefly the Canadian football league. Uh, did you have dreams when you were a kid of playing in, in, uh, as a professional football player? You know, I did, uh, any success I had or notoriety I received as an athlete, uh, I'll be quite honest with you was not really do so much to skill. It was more how I played the game. I played the game very uh, recklessly. I played it as violently as I could. Um, I played it as aggressively as I could. Um, I always dreamed of going uh, to the NFL. Um, I got invited to the 1984 NFL Combine, you know, which for, for your uh, football fans who are not familiar with what that is, it's basically the NFL's meat market where they test drive prospects to see if they're draftable, if they uh, want, want that player to be a part of their organization. And um, I found out real quick that I probably was not going to be a professional football player, or if I was, it wasn't going to last very long because um, I, 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 I did everything I could to prepare myself and to be at my best, but I just uh, athletically was not good enough to play at least for any length of time on that level. Well, I mean, you, you made it to the CFL and the USFL, and that's more than 99.9% uh, .9 of us who played high school football ever got to. So uh, that's awesome. I mean, you know, and, and when you, especially when you look at it today, and I, I cover the NFL for another website. So I know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about the combine. Um, Today, the kids that are coming out today are so athletically ridiculous. It's crazy. You see guys that weigh, you know, almost 300 pounds, and they're so athletic today. It's amazing the uh, how athletes have just gotten better and better as we go along. Well, you know, Steve, it's, uh, I'm not an excuse guy. And, um, and, and I know in, in your world and in the audience that, that listens to your show, uh, excuses don't go over real good. And so, like for me, athletically, I did every single thing I could uh, to play professional football. I, I, I can't fall back on saying like, oh, well, I hurt my knee, my, I hurt my back, I hurt my shoulder, the coach didn't like me. I don't have any excuses. I did, I, I prepared myself mentally and physically and emotionally and, and was at my best and I just wasn't good enough. And, and for any of us, if we do the very best we can at something, even when we fall short of what our objective is, if you can look in the mirror and say, man, I didn't have anything left, that was my best, you can find satisfaction in that. Oh, yeah. I remember a couple of years ago um, during training camp, I, I uh, was sitting in one of Bill Belichick's um, uh, press conferences. I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. But, you know, he was talking about – guys who give it their all. And he was like the toughest part of his job. It was the fact that it was some guy who came in and just couldn't meet what they were looking for, but gave it everything he absolutely had. That was the toughest part of his job was telling the guy that he was getting cut. 
And I think regardless of, of what uh, world or environment that we operate in, um, any of us can admire that in people. I think what's frustrating is when you see someone that has talent or has God-given ability and then doesn't capitalize on it. That's really frustrating when you're the guy struggling to keep up with the guy who has all those gifts but doesn't take advantage of them. Right, exactly. So after that, uh, you became a federal law enforcement agent. Was this something you had your eye on down the road, or did this just kind of come up on you? You know, it, it wasn't I, like I didn't have some long term plan B to become uh, a law enforcement officer. Uh, you know, when I realized that I wasn't going to be a football player, I had to invent a plan B. I was, I never really had a, I'm not a plan B guy. I, I usually set my sights on something and then go all in. Um, but I, but I had to, I was forced to develop a plan B. Um, and as hokey as it sounds at the time when I'm trying to figure out like, Jay, what's next? The television show Miami Vice was very popular. Uh, this was mid eighties and as an audience, like we had never seen a cop show like that. Everything that we had seen before was very procedural. It was detectives in suits and ties responding to crime scenes or uh, uniform officers in patrol cars. And then all of a sudden Miami Vice shows up and Sonny Crockett's wearing his Hugo Boss suit and he's driving a Lamborghini around South Beach and he's negotiating for narcotics. Um, and he's in this undercover role. And I was like, man, you know what? That really sounds exciting. I think I could do that. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Last week I did a podcast with the two DEA guys that uh, went down and were hunting Pablo Escobar. And one of them, Steve Murphy, was uh, said almost the same thing you just did. Uh, when he got assigned to the uh, – right after he became part of DEA, he got assigned to Miami, and it was during that, that same time frame. And he was like, Sonny Crockett was like the guy, you know, I wanted to be Sonny Crockett. So. <laughs> yeah, most of the were down there, you know, at that time, uh, you know, when Columbia was producing massive amounts of cocaine and, and bringing them into South Florida. Those were the days of the cocaine cowboys down there. And uh, man, those guys, they have my highest admiration. Right. And, uh, you know, I read about when you first became a, a special agent of ATF. You were only on the job about a week and you got taken hostage and shot during an invest, uh, arrest warrant, uh, you know, on a on an operation, I guess, from a, was it a convicted felon or somebody who just got out of jail or was yeah, it somebody I, who you know, was I, on his way? Yeah, I did. I got off to a rough start and I got hired on a Monday. I got sworn in uh, four days later on a Thursday. Um, I got taken hostage on in an arrest scenario. Um, I was uh, shot by the suspect in the back, uh, point blank, um, between my shoulder blade and my spine. The bullet traveled through my lung, it narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. Um, you know, in four days on the job, I was laying in the dirt and, and dog shit of a trailer park with blood coming out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose, you know, bleeding to death. And, I think now, you know, many years later, I, I look back at that with a smile on my face, um, knowing that only four days on the job, I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. I hadn't been paid yet. And I was dying um, in that trailer park. That's amazing. And uh, I, I read somewhere that the doctor who uh, uh, did the emergency surgery on you, Dr. Richard Carmona, was the uh, and later became the, the Surgeon General of the United States. You know, he, he's an amazing man. He'd actually be a great uh, guest for your show. He's he's interesting. He's he's brilliant. He's got a one of a kind story, and uh, it was just one of God's blessings. You know that that God had His hand on my shoulder and put me in the path of Dr. Carmona, who was running the trauma services here in Tucson before he had gained you know much of the notoriety he has now. Uh, I know. Uh, People in your in your SF community will be familiar with Dr. Carmona because he's very involved in that world too. But you know, he was a Green Beret, a medic, uh, a, college, a high school dropout um, who became you know uh, uh, a Green Beret medic, 
uh, put himself through medical school, um, became a world-renowned trauma surgeon. At the same time, he was running the uh, trauma program here in Tucson. Uh, he was also a member of the Pima County uh, uh, Sheriff's Department, a part of their tactical unit, one of their SWAT team members, and then uh, was involved in, in several high-profile uh, search and rescue incidents, several high-profile shooting incidents. Um, and then ultimately, yes, became the uh, United States Surgeon General under President Bush. Man, that's amazing. Well, you, if somebody was smiling on you on a bad day where at least you had him, uh, you know, being there for you when you got pulled to the hospital. How long did that uh, uh, recovery take for you? And what kind of, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitation did it take to get back in the line of duty? Well, you know, at that point in my life, I was 26 years old. I was in uh, really amazing shape, um, uh, you know, fresh off a football career. And, uh, my fitness level was was very high. I recovered. Uh, man, I recovered pretty quickly, to be honest with you. Um, I forced myself back on the job probably too soon. Um, after about, I don't know, maybe three weeks after the shooting, um, I showed back up at work and my boss was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't you understand how work comp works? Like you have 90 days before anyone's even going to ask a question. You've been out three weeks, but I was so pissed off and frustrated by the, by, by my failure in that event. I couldn't wait to get back and try again and see if I could do it right the next time. Now, were you married at this time or were you still single then? I was, I was married, um, you know, and, and, and I've, uh, as, as many of your uh, uh, audience and, and listeners will, will attest themselves, uh, people that, that, that live the life we have, really they, they do that. Uh, many of them are successful long-term in that because of the base that they have at home. And, and I have a truly amazing family. Yeah, because I didn't know how your wife would react to you being on the job four days and then being critically shot and wounded. Oh, uh, yeah, you can imagine that didn't go over real well. No, <laughs> because uh, I was actually I had some notes this morning. I was reading them and my wife was reading over my shoulder and she said, if that happened to you on the and now she was a special forces wife. But she said, if that happened to you on day four, I, I'd be telling you to pull pitch. <laughs> I had that, you know, I had opportunities to leave, good ones. Um, mm -hmm. When, uh, you know, after I was shot, I had attorneys that were uh, lobbying for me to allow them uh, to take a case uh, to get a, a retirement for me. And I mean, they were talking generational type money, millions of dollars. Uh, because I, I was, to be honest with you, I was placed in a situation that I wasn't prepared for, trained for, um, equipped for any of those things. And, and uh, that, that event had created quite a bit of liability for the agency. And uh, they very likely would have paid a lot of money to make my story go away and make me vanish. But, um, man, I was, like I said, when I was young, money was... It, was and, and still does not hold a great amount of value or drive or motivation for me. Um, any of the people in, in the worlds that we operate in, um, they don't take those jobs uh, for money, thinking that they're going to get rich or famous. They take them for, for other reasons, uh, reasons that, you know, where we want to impact the greater good, not because we want to impact our bank accounts. Exactly. And I, I read that you conducted over 500 undercover operations after, obviously, you were back on, on duty. And um, you took part in quite a few uh, famous ones, the Rodney King riots, um, the Col Columbine, Columbine High School in Colorado, the, the uh, bombing in Oklahoma City, and the Branch Davidians in Waco. And I that was I, the one I wanted to ask you about was the uh, the Branch Davidians because we heard so many different stories about how this went down. And I don't know, you know, if, if uh, you can discuss any of it now, but I, we heard so many different things about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. And then 
Uh, I was wondering if you could shed any light on any of this for us. Yeah, you know, there was um, uh, amazing uh, ATF special agents, men and women, who um, attempted to raid that compound in uh, February of 1993. Um, they were there legally. They were they were there properly, morally, and ethically to be there. Um, they walked into uh, an ambush. Uh, there were there were mistakes made. There were tactical mistakes made. Those have been admitted. They're obvious. Some of them. Uh, four agents were killed. You know, dozens of others were chewed up in the firefight. Um, federal law enforcement really had not seen uh, a, a violent event uh, like that at that time. Um, a lot of heroic agents uh, did a lot of heroic things that day. And um, but but yes, you know, there were there were mistakes made and there were flaws in the planning and the execution of it. And you know, as happens many times, uh, people lost their lives behind it and because of it. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was overseas at the time and we were watching it unfold on TV from a distance. And I mean, it seemed I mean, it didn't seem like we were looking at something that was taking place in the United States, if that makes any sense. I mean, it seemed like we would never see this what we were watching unfold happened in our country, but obviously it did. And uh, it was such a shame that later on, all the kids ended up dying, you know, in the fire. And, uh, you know, um, it's just one of those bad things that happened in our country that we wish we could erase. Again, you were involved with Columbine and the the Muir Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which that was horrible. I, I Again, I was I remember watching that from a distance. You know, there's there's events that take place uh, within our country where we we tend to think that evil like that exists outside of our borders. Um, and every so often we're reminded that it, it, it's right here at home as well. Exactly. And uh, th that'll bring us to, you know, the. Uh... Operation Black Biscuit, where yourself and other uh, members of the ATF infiltrated the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club and um, some other organizations as well. How did this come about? Well, it was actually inspired uh, by the Hells Angels and, and the violence that were surrounding them, you know, themselves. Um, they were operating for the most part with impunity. They didn't have a lot of people looking at it, investigating it. Um, really what kicked it off full bore, um, we, we, had, we had begun the operation, but really what set it off was there was a riot uh, that took place in a Laughlin, Nevada casino in 2002 between the Hells Angels and their rival motorcycle gang, the Mongols. And, and that riot was captured on you know hundreds of casino closed circuit television cameras, and then rebroadcast you know the next day on the six o'clock news, and uh, you know a firefight like that, and stabbings and beatings that took place you know in a public venue with civilians exposed to it, really kicked our operation in gear and solidified our mission that we had to do something about. So were you assigned to that or did you volunteer for this one? I, you know what? In, in the, as an undercover operator, like really you're always, you're always okay. volunteered. Like no one makes you take an undercover assignment. Um, they, they, they can't force that on you. Um, probably, maybe, maybe a, a good side to my personality or character trait, or maybe a bad side, you know, it depends on how you look at it, is that I was never the best undercover operator. I was never the best uh, cop or detective. You know, I, I, I know dozens who I uh, view to be better than me in all those areas of, of investigation. I was just always willing. I was always willing to try. I always raised my hand uh, and accepted assignments that other people didn't want 
for, for various reasons, whether they were too dangerous, too complex, uh, you know, the, you know, those impossible cases. I was always willing to try. Um, and so to give you a long answer to a short question, I, I was recruited into that operation. And it was voluntary. No one twisted my arm or held a gun in my head and said, you have to go do this. Well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I spoke with uh, another one of the guys who worked with you undercover last night. Uh, I worked with him in Mexico, and uh, he he had some great things to say about you. And when we, we were talking actually on the phone about um, a, a military guy, and we were both commenting that this guy was harder than woodpecker lips, as as we said. And then uh, I told him I was getting ready to interview you because I had been a, a, a visitor to his home in in Mexico City while we were working down there. And I had seen some of the pictures that he was involved in this to Carlos Canino. And Carlos had some great things to say about you. He told me in no uncertain terms, he was like, Steve, Jay is the real deal. When you're talking about undercover guys and guys who are willing to go to to the absolute limit and put their lives on the line, he's the real deal. So, uh, well, that's, you know, that's, that's nice to hear. That's, uh, uh, those kind words from someone that you've worked alongside that you respect, um, that you've put your life on the line alongside. Those are always flattering, uh, words to hear. Uh, I could say and, and do say the exact same things about Carlos. He was critical to our success. Um, Carlos uh, was a guy as an operator in the undercover world that everybody loved Carlos. You know Carlos. Everybody loves him. Um, and he had this unique way of charming suspects, charming the bad guys. And they would, and, and not just in the Hells Angels case, I saw it happen many times before. They would fall in love with him. And he would have some of the most vile, violent, vicious, wicked people on the planet like doubled over in laughter um, <laughs> and then when you can get someone that hard to belly laugh with you you're way ahead of the game and he was a master of it well he did he had that same uh, effect on people in mexico when we were working down there um carlos was my contact i, I was trying to keep a bunch of hollywood people from running amok while they were filming a uh, a drug cartel movie down there and they were always trying to go in areas that we probably shouldn't have gone in. And uh, Carlos was my contact because he tell uh, every day I'd call him on the phone and say, Hey, uh, <clears throat> we're going to be working down here today. And he'd be like, don't go down there. <laughs> and yeah, then the Mexican know. cops, they, uh, the Mexican cops loved him. And, and he had, he had that, uh, that, that effect on everybody. And it he told me that you, yeah, it was really the key to his success is that he's, he's a very likable man. Um, it doesn't matter, uh, especially in an undercover role, what side of the law you're on. Um, you like him. And we like to surround ourselves with people that we enjoy because we find comfort with them. And Carlos was the master of making people comfortable and gaining their trust and gaining their confidence and building their loyalty. In some cases, building their love um, it, while investigating a case that very, very few people can do it and very few people have ever done it to the level that Carlos has. Yeah, he told me uh, you two were involved in, in the very beginning of this operation in buying weapons from one of the suspects. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, and, and repeated that over and over. And it's uh, IEDs um, and narcotics. And, you know, uh, I think Carlos would probably be the first to tell you that neither he nor I was uh, a master motorcycle rider. And we're riding with some of the best big bike motorcycle riders, you know, uh, on the planet. And uh, trying to keep up with those guys and and stay in roll and maintain the bluff, you know, white knuckle riding with these guys, you know, at the pace and speed and style that they ride at, there were times when, when me and Carlos would get off a run and just look at each other with those deer eyes, like, man, how did we get through that? Just that, just the ride. Let alone now approaching these people and, and trying to get inside their criminal schemes. How difficult was that breaking into that? I mean, I can't imagine that they're very welcoming to anyone who's a stranger. Yeah, it's, you know, these guys aren't guys that you, you know, walk up and knock on the clubhouse door and ask for an application. Uh, it takes time, uh, like anything, like any relationship. It just takes time. You build trust, loyalty, confidence, all those things. Those things come with spending extended amount of time around people. So they get to know you. You get to know them. Um, they're constantly testing you. As a new guy, as 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 a group of unknown people, everything you do and say is being scrutinized. Every word that comes out of your mouth, how you walk, how you talk, the car you drive, the motorcycle you ride, how you ride it, the clothes you wear, who you associate with, how you speak to people, where you live, what the condition of your house is like, everything is being looked at to see if they can find a chink in your armor. Because they survive through paranoia. They have to be paranoid. That is how they stay out of prison, is by not trusting people. And so you're constantly, every day, with every element and aspect of what you're doing, you're trying to prove yourself. How difficult is that mentally? trying to maintain something like that. When when you're talking mentally, you, you have to stay in that role. You have to be basically a, a motorcycle club member at this point. You're not you're not an ATF agent. You can't just turn it off at five o'clock. I mean, this is like a twenty four hour a day job for however long. I think it was what, almost what two years that you did this. Yeah, it's it's super challenging to uh, be on the point twenty four hours a day, um, nonstop, while you're living a fictitious life and a, and 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 presenting yourself to be someone other than who you are. Um, like really, a, 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 I think a very demonstrative story of that is I came home 
one day after being gone for an extended period of time. And my wife told me, you cannot be gone for months at a time and then walk in this house and treat me and your kids like we're suspects on the street. You can't talk to us that way. And then in my self-defense, I told her, now I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this person on and off. It has to stay on. And then the response was, well, when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer into that light switch and turn that attitude down. And if you can't, don't come back. That's tough. I mean, that, uh, that I can't imagine the, the pressure that you're under and trying to live uh, that kind of a lifestyle that's so obviously in, you know, in contrast to what you, you, you would be back, <clears throat> excuse me, back at home. Um, I read in the uh, excerpt of the book that one of the ways that you guys um, earned the trust was faking a murder of a uh, rival club member. It was a very aggressive uh, tactical decision, a very aggressive investigative decision that we made. Um, early on in the investigation, when we first started associating and, and getting to know members of the Hells Angels, presented a very simple question to them. Um, knowing that they were at war with the Mongols, we asked, what happens if I cross paths with a Mongol? What, like, where are my instructions? The answer was, it's your job to kill them. We kill Mongols. So fast forward two years into the case, you know, we had held on to that information. And at the very end of the case, we presented the Hells Angels with a plan to murder a Mongol um, in Mexico, which is basically what we did. We, we found a Mongol, we um, dug a shallow grave, duct taped his hands and his feet, uh, threw him in the, in the grave, beat him with a baseball bat and shot him in the head, then took evidence of that murder and pictures of that murder and came back and delivered like real time visual evidence of what we had done to the Hells Angels. Uh, they went all in. They they entirely believed it. They embraced us. They you know they they awarded us membership in the gang. Uh, what they did realize is that it was a street theater. It was a giant hoax. It was counterfeit. We had taken a, a member of our task force, dressed him up in the vest of a Mongol. We had used. Uh, uh, blood and and meat parts that we got from a butcher and we used a homicide detective to create this fictitious homicide scene for us. Then we delivered all that with a very elaborate, detailed, uh, believable story. And so, yes, in order to push ourselves over the top, we convinced murderers that we had that we had committed a murder on their behalf. And after that, obviously, then the trust factor was there amongst them for you. Yes. And, and you know, we had we had committed the ultimate act of, of dedication and loyalty to them. What was very frustrating was the fact at the end of the case when we had climbed that mountain, the, the risk that was being presented daily on the undercover team was so immense and it was so much out of control that the people managing and supervising the case were no longer comfortable in allowing us to maintain that cover and stay in role. So right when we got to the point where we really could have done, you know, some incredible damage uh, to the organization, we were pulled out and the case was brought down you know, in my opinion, at, at that time, prematurely, in hindsight, um, now that I've had a chance to step back and reflect, uh, the people that closed it probably saved my life because I, I was not capable of saving my own life or thinking clearly at that point in time. And then, you know, once they obviously pulled the, the pin on this and they uh, conducted some raids on on their various clubhouses and arrested a bunch of people. Now you have to testify, right, in in court? You know, that's the, the beauty of, of America. That's the beauty of, of 
where we live and why we live in the greatest country and, and serve under the greatest government, you know, the, the world has ever known is that the accused have the ability to face and question their accusers. Um, and that's, you know, that that's, that, that's a, a core element to our justice system. So yes, all those things that we said and did during that two year investigation were open for scrutiny from the Hells Angels defense attorneys. And how many of them ended up going to prison for this? It was quite a few. I remember that got arrested from watching the news at the time. Yeah, we indicted, I believe, 55 uh, members and associates. I think 16 of them were indicted on RICO charges. A couple of them were um, you know, uh, murder suspects that were death penalty candidates. Mm -hmm. um, very much uh, to, a, to a frustrating uh, uh, aspect for me is that when the case was turned over to the prosecutors, the prosecutors and the case agents and the agency could not agree on how they were going to deliver the case into the courtroom. And an internal argument started within DOJ on the good guy side that ultimately weakened our prosecution. Um, we did not get the prosecutions that we hoped for, that I believe we earned, uh, that we deserved. Um, there were deals cut, plea deals cut, there were charges dismissed. Um, but what was, what was frustrating is, is those deals were not cut behind anything other than um, a, a stellar investigation. That investigation is every bit as prosecutable and winnable today as it was in July of 2003, based on evidence, uh, agent testimony, um, electronic recordings, uh, thousands of hours of electronic uh, criminal recordings. Um, everything you can imagine, but what's very frustrating as an investigator is to see something that you put so much effort and time into kind of crumble before your eyes, and it, but it's out of your hands and there's nothing you can do about it. And you just have to accept the outcome. Yeah, it must've been frustrating. I mean, for, for you guys who risked so much to see it kind of not, get to the level that you were looking for? Well, you know, as happens many times uh, in, in many areas of the government machine, uh, the, the men and women with their boots on the ground um, are often overridden um, by people that wear neckties and cufflinks to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a military guy, I can sympathize with that. Um, I, I also read that after your investigation was over, obviously, uh, the Hells Angels and other organizations such as the MS-13 and Aryan Brotherhood were, you know, putting death threats on you. Was this all related to the same case or different cases? It, it was. It was, um, you know, there were murder contracts being issued. There were threats against my family. The Angels had farmed contracts to the Aryan Brotherhood, the MS-13, some L.A. street gangs. Um, and, you know, there were threats to uh, kidnap and torture my teenage daughter. There were threats to kidnap my, my adolescent son off the school bus. There were threats to kidnap and gang rape my wife. Um, there were threats, you know, all verified, credible, documented threats where they were planning to um, try to expose me to the AIDS virus. Um, like all kinds of wicked uh, payback. Um, but, you know, like it, in reality, none of that really shocked me. It, 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 that might not be an entirely accurate statement. It shocked me to the extent and to the scope that the threats went, that they actually were threatening to uh, injure, harm, murder members of my family. But threats didn't shock me in that you, you never change the tiger's stripes. Mm -hmm. If you're going to associate and involve yourself and investigate violent people, you all of a sudden think that that's going to turn off when they find out who you are. It's just who they are. It's what they do. So... That was a very, a very difficult, very perilous time, 
you know, in my life and in my family's life. But, you know, we've, we've come out the other end of that, uh, hopefully come out of it better, stronger. Uh, and, um, you know, as, as dramatic and traumatic as it was for all of us at the time, you know, now in hindsight, and I wouldn't change anything. Um, I, I really wouldn't. And then uh, I know there was a, a issue with, with the ATF itself with, you know, withdrawing your protective countermeasures and your, you know, you protecting your identity. And there was a actual firebombing of your home. Well, yeah, that was, you know, um, a part of that, that, that dark period that I was telling you about post investigation that, you know, I issued complaints that I didn't feel like the, the threats were being in cover. I felt like they were being ignored and brushed under the rug at, at, to some point. Um, when I complained, the ATF um, doubled down on me. They exposed, you know, all the covert documents that I had used to, you know, conceal my identity, conceal my residence. Um, my house was uh, was arsoned, and uh, no, no one no one bothered to care or do anything about it. It was almost like. Uh, uh, at least certain elements of the agency, certain high-level executives in the agency, like found some satisfaction in the fact that the retaliation against me had risen to that level. Um, but it goes back to my statement earlier, um, and, and, I, and I've said this publicly and privately many times. I love ATF. I love my agency. I love the men and women with their boots on the ground who are, you know, out there uh, doing the very best they can to investigate violent crime you know, on behalf of all the rest of us. But there is a handful of people, or was at least at that time, you know, that wear neckties and couplings to work that decided they knew better. And uh, I, I, I ran into a perfect storm of incompetence. Hmm. That's tough. I mean, especially after, you know, all you had been through. Is that what uh, made you ultimately in 2009 to write the book? You know, that was part of it. Um, like ATF had said, we can't help you. We can't protect you, um, nor do we really intend to or, or even intend to try. Um, I had high level executives tell me, you're on your own. You need to understand that you are on your own. So uh, a big motivation in writing No Angel was okay, I'm on my own. I'm a, I'm a man out here on an island with limited resources. What do I do? And I felt like, you know what? I'm going to hide in plain sight. I don't have the resources to run and hide on my own, but I can draw enough attention to what happened so that if anything bad happens, if any harm comes to me or my family, um, or at least intended harm, maybe the people that are planning it will stop and pause and realize that that they will ultimately be the prime suspects in anything bad that might happen. That was whether that reasoning was flawed or illogical or you know whatever any individual's opinion of that strategy might be. That that's that's what I did. You know, good or bad, um, yeah. I live with it. And was it difficult putting it all back, uh, your memories back in writing the book? It is. It, it was. It's hard. It's extremely hard um, to write about yourself. Um, when I when I wrote the book, I, I did my very best to honor and flatter uh, the people that I worked with and worked alongside. And I also did my very best to be honest with uh, myself about who I was uh, my mistakes, my failures, my regrets. Um, I don't. I don't think anybody that reads No Angel will come away from it saying like, "Oh, this is just another hero story." Um, a lot of people read it, and I've gotten messages from people saying like, "Man, I don't like you. I don't like who you were and what you did." And I get that. Um, I, I knew that that would be the case when I wrote the book, but I wasn't going to sign my name to something that was some flowery, like pat myself on the back uh, love story uh, without it being accurate and authentic. Interesting. And then 
What year did you uh, retire from ATF? I retired in, oh my goodness, 2016, I believe. So um, you, you wrote this while you were still a member of ATF, and obviously several more years passed before you finally retired. Yeah, and you can imagine how when you're already in a legal dispute with your agency and the Department of Justice, and then you release an, an unapproved book with an unauthorized manuscript, um, you can imagine how that went over. <laughs> yes, I can. I don't have to imagine very hard on that one. That's got to be, uh, yeah, that must have well, been. You know, the frustrating thing is that ATF said, you're on your own to defend yourself. You're on your own to protect yourself. And then when I took the steps to protect myself by writing my book, then they were pissed off about the way that I decided to protect myself after I was told, you're on your yeah. own to protect yourself. So they trick bag me good. Um, but it is what it is. Like, I hold no hard feelings. I live a happy life. I laugh and smile every day. I'm not burning for anybody. There's people that, you know, intended harm on me. There's people within my own agency who did everything they could to see me burn down. Um, not one day goes by where I wish any ill will on any of those people. It's just, um, I, I, uh, to be able to forgive and move forward and, and live a happy life, is truly my best payback. There you go. And I know you uh, appeared in several documentaries on television. Um, you even appeared in a couple of uh, feature films as well. I did. I, um, you know, through the notoriety of this case and my book, uh, got some attention, um, probably undeserved attention, quite honestly. Um, there's a whole lot of people that I worked with and worked alongside over the course of my career that, like I said earlier, um, have my highest regard, my highest respect, who were much better at the job than I was. Some of the things I did uh, created uh, a lot of public attention, which led to my ability to consult on some, on some films. And uh, I, I had a big consulting role in a movie that came out in uh, 2018 called Den of Thieves, which was a, uh, a cops and robbers movie, and I was very involved in that, had a small speaking role in it. Um, but um, amazingly, you know, you'd think after, you know, 500 plus undercover operations and playing uh, a fake, false uh, character, that I'd be a better actor than I am. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> I'm a terrible actor, man. It's, you That's know, it's funny. different when you're out there hustling and joking and smoking with the bad guys. It's way different when you're sitting, you know, on a movie set and there's five cameras pointed at you and a cat and a crew behind you watching. Um, what way different environment? Way harder, in my opinion. That's interesting because I, I thought you were going to tell me the opposite that it it was an easy transition from being undercover all the time, but. I guess with the cameras pointing at you, and I'm the same way, uh, I'm much more comfortable behind it than I am in front of it. And uh, that's why we do audio and not video on these things. Well, you know, I think what the difference is, I've looked at it uh, like from that 30,000 foot perspective, is that when you're operating undercover, you know, me and Carlos are out, are out running around, uh, we're in control. We're controlling the environment through what we say and what we do. Uh, we're manipulating the environment and the suspects and positioning them. Uh, when you're on a film set, it's the exact opposite. You have no control and everyone is telling you what to do, where to be, what to say, how to stand, how to look. Um, and you have no control. Um, and I was not nearly as comfortable uh, being told what to do as I was just creating on the fly. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes sense. It does. So uh, after you retired, uh, you, you you own and operate your own law enforcement training group. Um, and I understand that you're now a high school football coach. I did. You know, when I retired, I, I was actually quite busy speaking at uh, law enforcement seminars and conferences and, and doing some uh, speaking in the corporate world, translating my story into the corporate world, and then, you know, doing training seminars, you know, for cop groups and and first responder groups, and then uh, the virus hits, and, and that market is is gone, and likely gone for 
a, a, a long period of time. Um, but even well before I retired, I was coaching. Uh, my love of football, I, I, I always had that. I never lost it when, even when I, when I failed as a player, I never lost my love of the game. Um, I coached my kids in youth sports. Um, I was coaching high school football while I was still on the job um, and, and did that for, you know, 15 years. And now I just recently, just actually last year, uh, December of last year, took a head coach's job at a very small school in a, the northeast corner of Tucson here, Tangibody High School, um, a very small out-of-the-way school that no one's paying much attention to that has historically not had much success. And so we're doing what we can to try to change the football culture there. And part of that, part of way of doing that is taking all these life experiences, um, you know, many of which were, were created on the job as a law enforcement officer and translating them to these young men uh, through football to just help them be good people and be productive and, and, and be leaders and, and, and go out and, and live amazing lives. That's awesome. And, and um, now in Arizona, is uh, football season going on? Because I know uh, we just moved down to Florida from Mass. We lived up in central Massachusetts. And uh, the central Mass, the football programs have been put off until February this year. Ours here in Arizona is greatly delayed. Um, about, we're about two months behind. I actually... Um, we will actually, my team will actually play our first game on November 6th, and we'll have a shortened season. We'll have probably a six-game season that plays us up, you know, to close to the Christmas holiday. Um, but for all these kids, especially our seniors who are faced with no season at all, really not all that long ago, you know, from the from the spring to, you know, even midsummer, whether they were even going to get to play a single football game in their season in their senior year was highly doubtful so pushing it back and having a shortened season um we're, we're just grateful we're going to have a chance to put our kids on the field and let everybody see what they're capable of oh that's awesome well jake we want to thank you for uh your your service to the country and also uh thank you for taking the time today um for joining us here on soft rep radio we really appreciate it and uh, hopefully I will be hearing some good things from, uh, is it Tanque Verde High School? It is. It is. You got it pretty close. Tanque Verde. Tanque Verde. Uh, okay. Thank you for having me and my best to all your audience. Much love to everybody out there. Stay safe. Stay, stay well. And um, make the best of today. All right. And, uh, again, we want to thank our guests. Jay Dobbins for joining us here on uh, Soft Rep Radio. If you want to get Soft Rep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to all our articles, podcasts, and gear reviews. They're all perfectly formatted to your individual device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of eBooks and our exclusive team room forms and content available on all Apple and Android devices. I said that for the first time without screwing it up. But, uh, Jay, once again, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Thank you. All right. Bye. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.